Hey there, podcast listeners. Welcome to Engendered, the show that features stories that explore the systems, practices, and policies that enable gender-based violence and oppression, and the solutions to end it. We use gender as a lens to understand power and oppression, teach feminism, and decolonize hearts and minds, one story at a time. Engendered is sponsored by Can Do It, spelled K-A-N-D-U-I-T, and I'm your host, Terry Yuan. On this episode of the Engendered Podcast, our guest is Jen Camel, CEO and founder of VBAC Facts, a platform that helps perinatal professionals and cesarean parents achieve clarity on vaginal birth after cesarean, or VBAC, through her educational courses, online membership, continuing education trainings, and consulting services. We speak with Jen today about what the COVID-19 pandemic means for expectant mothers in terms of pregnancy and labor choices and outcomes. Welcome, Jen. Thank you so much for having me. COVID and pregnancy and labor. I want to just get an overall pulse on how your business and the demand for consulting around pregnancy and labor outcomes has changed since COVID. My business has actually stayed as busy as it has been. So I've actually have had a little bit of an uptick in consulting calls. But in terms of people seeking information about VBAC, so that way they can ensure their clients have VBAC, have access to VBAC in their community, that remains strong. It's still a huge priority. Let's go through each of the stages of pregnancy then. In terms of pregnancy, how has COVID impacted maternity care? I would assume that since there have been closures in most other elective professionals in the medical community, that there might have been some cutbacks as well in OBGYN visits, as an example. Well, I think OBGYN visits are still considered essential because they are, a lot of it cannot be postponed, right? Like when a baby is due, a person goes into labor, that baby needs to be born. So in terms of prenatally, I think a lot of people have gone to telemedicine, However, I know midwives are still going from home to home and providing care, wearing appropriate PPE when it's available. But I also think it's difficult to say what is happening across the country because there's a lot of, everyone's in a different stage of COVID right now. Some communities are being hit really hard. Some communities are having to furlough hospital employees because their hospitals are empty. So when we're talking about patterns, it's really difficult to establish a pattern We can talk about what people are doing in various communities, but in terms of patterns, that's a difficult thing to actually state conclusively. But I've heard of people doing telemedicine. I know midwives are still going to some homes, um, and I'm sure there's a whole variety of other things occurring. That's actually a concern, the fact that there can't be a pattern to identify, because patterns imply that there's a certain level of standard of care. And if there's variation in that standard of care, then there's variation in terms of access and quality. Well, absolutely. And one of the things that has been surprising to me is look at how hospitals are developing policy in response to COVID-19. And when I started doing a little bit of research into how have hospitals responded in crises in the past, it has not been consistent with what is happening now. And so that's a challenge because I think as we see often in medical care in terms of hospital policy, Every hospital is really developing their own policy with maybe some influence from ACOG, maybe some influence from the evidence, but really administrators and in some cases physicians are developing that policy by what they think they want to do. 
And so, you know, what's happening right now in terms of COVID-19 is just a greater reflection of what happens in medical care in America. So in terms of policy, are there any examples that you can offer around hospitals or communities that are setting best practices for policy that you would like to share for the rest of the country? In the research that I was doing for the training that I have available at bvacfacts.com slash COVID-19, I believe it was the University of Florida who had developed a wonderful strategy for prioritizing and mitigating patient flow across various departments, including obstetrics. And I was quite surprised that this type of policy wasn't being instituted. You know, we don't need to recreate the wheel. There, We have survived crises before. Policies have been made. People have seen what works. So let's lean into what we know what works rather than creating something new. And so one of the things that they mention in terms of obstetrics is delaying elective cesareans and elective inductions for 7 to 14 days. Just by doing that, and when we look at just repeat cesareans or people who are pregnant after cesarean and 90% have a repeat cesarean, that's a considerable amount of repeat cesareans happening every year in the United States. It's about 500,000. So to be able to take all of those cesareans, which are using hospital staffing and resources, and being able to delay them for 7 to 14 days and then schedule them based on availability that would help mitigate flow considerably. And of course, they recommend that emergency situations, emergency cesareans or hysterectomies should of course be prioritized and done immediately. But there are things that we have a little bit more wiggle room in. Since you mentioned hysterectomies, I don't have any knowledge about hysterectomies. I'm embarrassed to say. what makes it something that's an emergency? Is there some you know, level of blood loss potentially that, that could endanger the person's life, the woman's life? So the most common reason for peripartum hysterectomy is abnormal placenta attachment. And so that's things like placenta accreta, increta, and percreta. And that's when the placenta abnormally attaches to, in, or through the uterine wall. So the reason why people have complications with accreta is that there is excessive blood loss. And so the placenta is left inside the uterus. It's not detached. And after the baby is delivered, the entire uterus with the placenta inside is taken out. And that would be a cesarean hysterectomy. Have you seen anecdotally or perhaps through hospitals and medical establishments sharing this information that there has been in response to COVID and the fears of pregnant women of exposing themselves to hospitals and the virus that they're voluntarily choosing to change their pregnancy plan. So they're asking for a midwife or they're deciding to go to a birthing center instead. Absolutely. I'm seeing a huge increase. Just anecdotally reports from midwives and also pregnant people who are, who are seeing midwives are seeing more clients and pregnant people are reaching out to midwives more to get out of the hospital environment to avoid the possibility of COVID transmission. In terms of supply, do we actually have enough birthing centers and midwives to accommodate this potential uptick in demand? No, we don't. And so it's really an issue of who is able to get in with a midwife now. And, um, and we don't have sufficient midwives to cover the demand. I don't know anything in terms of 
whether alternative birthing plans are covered under insurance. So if you hire a midwife or a doula, is that something that you have to cover out of pocket? Well, it really depends on your insurance policy. And I would urge birthing people to call their insurance company several times because sometimes the person answering the phone isn't familiar with the concept of midwives. They don't understand that midwives or even birth centers are covered under their policy. So you can call your insurance, but but parents can also work with their midwives who are familiar with how to navigate insurance for specifics on what they can do. But generally, PPOs are more likely to cover an out-of-hospital birth. You know, I actually recall hearing up in Washington, I thought that Kaiser was covering out-of-hospital births. But yeah, that's really a case-by-case scenario that people need to check in with their insurance. It really should be an option covered universally, but unfortunately is not. And I'm guessing that this is something that's part of the movement, uh, the reproductive justice movement to make sure that the full spectrum of both pregnancy and birth choices are available. Absolutely. And especially in terms of Medi-Cal and being able that each state recognizes licensed midwives as care providers who can then bill to Medi-Cal and then be able to provide care to clients who are on Medi-Cal. In terms of birthing centers, this probably comes to a lot of the myths that people have around not being able to give birth in a hospital setting. Who is present at a birthing center normally? Well, it really depends on the birthing center. I mean, you'll certainly have your primary midwife. Typically, they will have one, if not more, assistance there. Um, And then people will bring in their doula or their other support system, their family. Um, But that really depends on the situation at an individual birth center, because some birth centers have a lot of students. Others don't. Some might have one assistant there. Others might have multiple. So it just, that's a good question to ask your midwife when you are looking at various birthing centers, as well as out of hospital birth. Because I do want to add that a lot of people think there is a massive difference between home birth and hospital birth. I mean, home birth and birth center birth. And there's really not. It's just what physical location you're in. When a midwife attends a home birth, they're bringing all of that same equipment and supplies that are typically at the birth center to your home. So a lot of people have this psychological thing about having to go somewhere else to birth. And so they feel like somehow a birth center is some sort of middle ground, but it's really not. It's just birthing at home in a birth center. What are the differences, I'm guessing besides masks, (laughs) what else is different under COVID in both a hospital and a birthing center? Is it that everybody's just wearing masks and gloves or are there some other kinds of procedures that are now being implemented? Let's break those up into two different things. So first, hospital birth. Again, this varies greatly depending on the area of the country you're in and your individual hospital's policy. I mean, a lot of hospitals are experiencing great shortages with PPE, whereas before they might wear one mask with one client, and now they're wearing one mask from client to client to client. They might even be wearing one mask for days. So there is a massive concern about protecting our medical professionals from COVID transmission. We also see a great variety in how hospitals have instituted special COVID-19 policies in terms of um, requiring inductions, requiring epidurals, um, saying if you want to have a VBAC, you're going to have to go elsewhere because we're only doing repeat C-sections right now. 
And again, these are anecdotal stories of little pockets of hospitals. And it's very difficult to get an idea of what's really happening, if there are any patterns or trends. But the thing that we need to keep in mind is, is that as that University of Florida study recommended, if we are able to delay admission and we are able to expedite um, discharge and decrease the amount of time that people are in the hospital, that's going to decrease their use of staffing, other resources, and also decrease the likelihood that they're going to transmit COVID. So that's an important thing to keep in mind. And when people have C-sections, they are there for a longer time postpartum. There are more opportunities for them to get COVID and also using more hospital staffing and resources. So we need to be judicious when we're thinking about how are we going to allocate hospital staff and resources relative to maternity care. So let's get to the term VBAC. That's your area of expertise. Vaginal birth after cesarean. Can you provide some statistics around the percentage of people who actually choose VBAC and are able to make that choice? That's a really slippery number to try to figure out who chooses to VBAC because let's take a step back there and think about what goes into that decision. So we live in a culture where a lot of people believe that VBAC is inherently dangerous and repeat cesareans are risk-free. We have aunts and uncles saying this, sisters and brothers, mothers and fathers. And so the birthing person is living in this world where they're told, oh, a repeat cesarean is just so convenient and easy and it's totally safe. And then they go to their provider who says, repeat cesareans are totally easy and safe. Why don't you do one? No one gets a medal for a vaginal delivery. You know, you're still a mother. All of those things that we have all heard a million times. So it is within that context that someone, quote, chooses to either plan a VBAC or schedule a repeat cesarean. And given the tremendous amount of misinformation, it's no surprise that in the United States, only about 13% of people actually have a VBAC. So let's say that in the inverse way, 87% have a repeat cesarean. I'm guessing this number differs across the country. Are there particular regions where there are higher percentages of VBACs, like the Northeast, for example, or the West, where there's potentially more access to alternatives such as birthing centers and midwives, and also potentially more access to just alternative ideologies and lifestyles? You know, well, I first want to um, challenge the idea that planning a VBAC is somehow alternative, because when we look at what the American College of OBGYN says, they encourage people to have access to VBAC. So when ACOG is encouraging you to do something, it's not alternative. <laughs> you know, however, the culture of our, of our country has led people to believe that somehow planning a VBAC is something alternative, which is why I love to go back to what ACOG says, because they're quite clear. ACOG should be offered to everyone who is pregnant after one cesarean. Those who are pregnant after two cesareans, some are still candidates. ACOG does not indicate an upper limit on the number of prior cesareans in order to be a VBAC candidate. I could go on and on. But the fact remains that planning a VBAC is not an alternative decision. It is completely evidence-based. But let me get back to your question. So you asked about if there were patterns or differences or arcs across the country. When we look at the state of California, which is where one in eight U.S. births take place, we can see that even though we are a, quote, progressive state, we still have a very low VBAC rate. And I believe it hovers around 10% here. 
and and I'm in California. So it's very difficult to access. And which is why birthing parents have to really be their own advocates in terms of learning the facts so they can seek out those incredible providers who are present. And those are obstetricians as well as midwives who are present in almost every community who truly supports VBAC and stands on the foundation of evidence. You know, the reason I asked that question is because I'm based out of New York City and I was expecting that there might be some trends related to urban areas. I know that when I was pregnant, my peer group of other pregnant women in my local community, all of us gave birth naturally. Some didn't even have epidurals uh, and nobody had a cesarean. And so VBAC wasn't, wow. VBAC wasn't even an, op, an issue because then their subsequent births were also vaginal. Yeah. And so it just seems odd to me culturally, that this is an issue, that there's this pressure, because the only pressure, I, I relate VBACs and the cultural pressure to have cesareans to corporate America, to yeah. profit-making machine, which I feel people in more urban, highly educated areas would be more inclined to resist. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting what you said about how you live in an area where everyone has access and so it's hard to imagine an area where it doesn't. And you've touched on something really important about the, the mentality and the psychology of physicians in particular who either work in areas where VBAC is very accessible and it's not a big deal versus in VBAC ban hospitals where the culture is very much VBAC is dangerous and it's an anomaly. And, you know, we are social creatures and we have the tendency to absorb the opinions of those around us, especially if they are in power. And so it's, I, I, I live in this world where I would love to have these providers come together and actually have a conversation with each other. Because I think if one physician who completely normalizes VBAC had a conversation with another physician who might have anxiety, trauma, or just fears based on what they've heard, there might be some meeting of the minds there because there is such a distance between the philosophy of those two providers. How do we even know that the people who are against VBACs, who are pro-cesarean births, are not there to begin with because they want to make money, because they want to minimize liability, not because they're actually putting the patient's care and well-being first as a priority? How do we know that? Well, yeah. Well, so there's multiple factors about what stands behind the culture of repeat cesareans and the ideology that VBAC is dangerous. The fear of litigation is certainly one of those. I mean, that's there's so much there that I wish physicians knew. But let me just share this. The incidence of negligence and people being harmed by negligence is significantly higher than the people who file medical malpractice lawsuits. So when we're talking about where is the harm occurring? The harm is occurring from medical negligence. And the amount of people who actually experience negligence who go on to sue is extraordinarily low. Now, an OB is one of those fields where it's one of the highest fields, but yet there is still a massive barrier between those who actually experience negligence or a bad outcome and those who file a lawsuit. Further, when we look at studies at examining why plaintiffs file lawsuits, there is a consistent thread of feeling like they are ignored, they're talked down to, 
they weren't aware of what was happening and why, there was very poor communication. And when we look at other studies that examine what are the personality traits of physicians who have been sued multiple times, can you guess what they are? They're arrogant, they're, they're, they, are, um, they don't participate in shared decision-making, they dictate medical, that you are going to do this. There's, there's no opportunity or room for the birthing parent to even express what it is they want. Their medical care is dictated to them. Well, is it a surprise that we then see when there's a bad outcome, the birthing person goes and sues that person because that person has set them up as, I am the one who makes all the decisions. Well, they made the decisions and I had a bad outcome. So when we see shared decision-making and we see people being able to be engaged in the medical decision-making process, there is a completely different dynamic present between the obstetrician and the patient. So medical malpractice and, and the concern over being sued is one major thing. Money, money varies a lot depending on where you are. Up in Alaska, they pay more for people who attend, for physicians who attend VBACs than repeat cesareans. I personally think there should not be any financial motivating factor. I feel like there should be some sort of way to equalize the compensation for a vaginal delivery versus a cesarean delivery to ensure that that's not a factor. But I think that one other thing that comes into play is how physicians are trained. I mean, there are medical schools that are still teaching medical residents, uh, medical students, that VBAC is dangerous. They're not even accurately conveying what ACOG says. So when you are a medical student and your professor who has all the power is telling you VBAC is dangerous, that is going to be ingrained in your head, right? You're not thinking for a moment that you, that you might be receiving education that is inconsistent with the medical evidence. And yet they receive that, they ingest it, they embody it, and then they go out into the world and believe and act as if that is the truth. And they just don't know. I would like to think that our doctors have more <laughs> independent, you know, the ability for more independent thought that you've just described. <laughs> but well, but that's a dynamic that we see in human beings, right? I mean, and I don't know if you've ever spoken with a physician about what the experience of medical school is like, but it's very much break you down and build you up. And it is a very um it's like the military. There's a, there's a Exactly. So there is no questioning of authority. You don't question authority. You do what you're told and you accept what you're told and what you're told is the truth. So that is that is the environment that we are stewing and growing OBs in. And then they go out and is it any surprise that so many of them take on this same mentality towards their patients? I do what I'm told, you do what you're told. But there are physicians who approach things completely differently. And so I think it's really important to note that this type of physician, this authoritative, uh, authoritative physician exists, but we also have physicians who support evidence, who support shared decision-making and support autonomy. And the challenge for parents is to find those providers in their community and support them. Those three traits that you described, we've identified them in previous conversations as feminist values. <laughs> so in other words, yeah, exactly. we need to find a feminist physician. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, absolutely. Getting back to this trend and cultural push towards cesareans, which, would you say that there is? Because as I said, like in my community, I feel like there's a, almost a pressure 
to give birth naturally and almost a pressure, not, not stated, of course, but self-imposed that, wow, my friend didn't even use it, didn't even need an epidural. Can I do that next time? Maybe I'm not as strong enough, like the superwoman, supermom kind of persona. But yeah, there was one other element besides liability and money as to why people push for cesareans, which is convenience, right? And yes, there's a lot less time that you have to be in the hospital if you've scheduled. How long is a cesarean operation? Is it an hour or more? You know, I don't know how long the physician actually is in the hospital from the time they arrive to perform the surgery to the time they leave. Um, And there's a lot of factors that go into the length of a cesarean, but it's significantly shorter than the duration that they would be in a hospital for a vaginal delivery. Can you talk to us about getting back to the risk? What actually are the risks of having a vaginal delivery if a doctor recommends a cesarean? I'm guessing that there are some preconditions that would make someone want to recommend a cesarean in terms of medical conditions. So there are abs- there's a host of medical conditions that can result in a recommendation for a cesarean delivery. And then there are the providers who will recommend a cesarean delivery for all the reasons that we've mentioned. So again, this is where getting the name of your provider from, and I have a whole article up on the website. I think it's up at, uh, gosh, you can Google VBAC facts, finding a provider and find it up there. But um, being able to screen your provider. So when they recommend a cesarean, you can relax in the truth of this is what I need, or at at the very least, this is what they're recommending. And there is a valid reason behind that recommendation. The final decision of how a baby is born or any medical intervention or decision always lies with the parent. The providers make recommendations based on the evidence, based on the current medical history, based on their clinical experience, and they share that with the patient. And then the patient is the one who makes the decision, and then the provider supports them in that informed decision. That is theoretically what is supposed to happen, even though that's not what we see many times. So there's a lot of reasons to recommend a cesarean. You know, if there is a breach pregnancy and the provider is not trained in breach delivery, often they will recommend a cesarean. What they should do is say, I know there is Dr. So-and-so and they are trained in vaginal breach delivery. Why don't you go have a consultation with them? It really, it is heartbreaking when I talk to parents who had their cesarean for breach and then they went on and experienced some sort of complication as a result of that cesarean in a subsequent pregnancy. It is a waste. Those patients, those people should be referred out to providers who are trained in vaginal breach delivery. And if you are a physician in your community, if you're an obstetrician, you should know who attends vaginal breach community, uh, vaginal breach birth in your community and refer those people out. They should at least have an opportunity for a consultation of the risks and benefits with someone who is trained so they can make an informed decision whether that's to have a vaginal breach delivery or a cesarean. But always evidence and choice should be the foundation on which obstetrics um, operates. Well, I'm guessing this goes back to the question we talked about earlier in terms of access to midwifery, midwifery and birthing centers. Midwifery, oh, midwifery, and, midwifery and birthing yeah. centers that communities of color who are less economically advantaged 
won't have access or time potentially, or won't even have the resources in the community and network to tap into to identify these alternatives. Um, and so is there a disparity in terms of VBAC data with regard to communities of color? You know, when we look at the actual VBAC rates, we can see that they're relatively comparable. But again, trying to figure out who is actually planning a VBAC is a really tricky number to get around because that's not really um, measured on a national level. So um, it's difficult to say who, like if, uh, what are the labor after cesarean rates by race because we just don't have that data on a national level. Okay, because when you, when you mentioned breach, I'm sure that I can tap into someone who knows an expert who delivers breach births, but it doesn't seem like it's an expertise that's well-known, that's widely yeah. available. And so just the idea itself, if I were in that situation of having to go through the research when you're experiencing the stress of pregnancy, the hormones, and then on top of that, potentially COVID, and exploring these options, it seems like it's almost not worth it, that it's easier to just follow inertia and go with whatever your doctor recommends and not necessarily take the time to be proactive in making your own health decisions. You know, when I feel overwhelmed by something, what I do is I break it down into steps and then I feel like I can do steps, right? So if someone was in this situation, the first thing that I would do is I would ask their provider if they know of any, anyone who attends vaginal breach delivery. And if they don't, then I would reach out to ICANN, the International Cesarean Awareness Network. I would reach out to local doulas in my community. I would call um, hospitals and talk to the charge nurse of the L&D unit and say, who attends vaginal breach delivery? So those are concrete things that you can do that would not take a whole lot of time. I mean, that's like you can shoot an email off to ICANN, you can make a couple phone calls. And at least that way, you know, like, okay, is there anyone in my community who attends vaginal breach delivery or not? But if you're someone who's like, you know what, I'm down with a cesarean, I'm okay, then schedule a cesarean. You know, this is about everyone knowing that you have options first and foremost. And then based on that option, do you want to go down road A or road B? So what are the, the myths surrounding why VBACs are not desirable by the medical community who are re not recommending VBACs? Like, why can't you have a vaginal birth after cesarean? Why is that risky, according to them? Why is VBAC difficult to access? Well, one of the reasons is because people have taken what ACOG says in terms of VBAC, and they have misinterpreted what ACOG said about anesthesia capabilities of hospitals supporting VBAC. So Many people believe that in order to offer VBAC, a hospital has to have 24-7 anesthesia. And yet, ACOG never said that. And I want to pause there. I want that to sink in. ACOG never said that a hospital had to have 24-7 anesthesia. That language is not in there. What they said is, is that they need to be able to have... Um, a cesarean delivery immediately available. A physician who is able to perform the cesarean needs to be immediately available. But what happened from that is hospitals around the country, given that vague language, made up their own interpretation of what immediately available means. 
And so there is no consistent definition. And when we talk about urban or rural hospitals offering VBAC, I mean, we can look at the state of California where one third of the hospitals that have 24 seven anesthesia ban VBAC. So let me say that one more time. In the state of California, where one in eight of US births occur, one third of hospitals with 24 seven anesthesia ban VBAC. So why do they do that? It's for all the reasons that we've just discussed. It's the concept of I'm going to switch out. I'm going to decrease my risk of perceived legal liability and instead put that risk on your body, that birthing person's body, in terms of future risks of accreta, uterine rupture, and the whole host of complications that, that follow cesareans. So it's the idea of convenience. It's the idea of mitigating risk because maybe they were told in medical school that VBACs are really risky and that is the culture of their hospital, Um, but it's not evidence-based. And if we want to talk about what ACOG said, they have been extremely clear that even though the concept of immediately available is the ideal situation, the inverse is not true. If you can't do immediately available, you still need to be offering VBAC. And what ACOG said in their 2019 guidelines, pardon me, their 2017 uh, 2017 guidelines, is that any hospital that is a level one unit should be offering feedback. And that is, language is crystal clear. There is no room for interpretation there. And yet, that those guidelines came out three years ago. Where are all the hospitals lifting their VBAC bans? Let me just make sure that I understand what you just said. 24-7 anesthesia, is the, that means that you have enough anesthesiologists on staff to be able to be ready to do a cesarean. Yes, you have someone there in the hospital who is available to perform an epidural or general anesthesia in the event of a cesarean or a spinal. Okay, but if you were giving a vaginal birth, you would, you would have that person anyway to do an epidural. Isn't that availability there regardless? No, it depends on the hospital. And that's one of the great myths of hospital birth is that every hospital has all the staffing and resources available all the time. And the truth is they don't. So you're saying that for someone who wants a vaginal birth, they may not have access to an epidural necessarily. It depends on their hospital. So that's a conversation to have with their provider. If they were going to do a VBAC and they chose to at a hospital where they had the choice for an epidural, then that anesthesiologist is going to be available either way for an epidural, for a vaginal delivery, or for a cesarean. So when you say the choice of an epidural, you know, whether there is 24-7 anesthesia or not, someone still has the choice of an epidural. It's just how quickly that epidural is being able, is able to be administered. So this is a question that people should have with their provider, and it's generally brought up within the context of the VBAC conversation. But the bottom line is ACOG encourages hospitals, level one or greater, to be offering VBAC. And they use that in the most crystal clear language. They say coercion is not acceptable. And they say even in situations where hospitals do not have, you know, the recommended staffing, they still cannot force people to have cesareans. But these are just guidelines and there's nothing enforceable about that. (laughs) It's just a, it's not a regulatory arm, in other words. You know, it's funny when people say that because I hear both sides of it. I say, we have to do this because ACOG says, but then other people say, well, but ACOG has no teeth, so I don't have to do this. 
And so what happens in that middle gray area is that you have people who pick and choose what they want to enforce from ACOG's guidelines, what they want to bring into their hospital policy. And depending on whether they want to bring a piece of ACOG's guidelines in or not, they either say, oh, well, we have to do this because of ACOG, or ACOG is just making suggestions. So it's really used both ways. And the bottom line is people should have access to VBAC regardless of what ACOG's guidelines are, because the foundation of medical care is people being able to make their own medical decisions. And what I want everyone on this call to know is that if there is a VBAC ban, people still have the right to refuse the recommendation of a repeat cesarean and plan a VBAC there. Because hospital policy is also not law. And what stands on the truth is that people have the right to make their own medical decisions. Well, when you referred earlier to hospitals that were imposing, for example, required inductions or required preventing birthing partners to be present during birth, et cetera, these are things that if a hospital is private and they have this policy, you don't really have a choice as a patient, right? You just have to find another hospital. No, no, you, you absolutely have a choice. The question is, how much do you want to fight? I mean, is someone going to sit there and... What, what, what would be the path for challenging these policies then? What would be the path for challenging these policies? Bringing attorneys involved? I mean, right now, right now, depending on what community you're in, things are either super crazy or hospitals are furloughing people. And when you're pregnant is not the time to be trying to make change. That's what organizations that we have many advocacy organizations throughout the United States who are here to create change. But when you're pregnant... That's, and especially when you're in labor, that's not really the time to be challenging policy. So, you know, when you talk about hospitals that are, quote, requiring or, quote, forbidding, all of this is still, it's, it's, all, it's all hospital policy, which is not law. And I think that's what people need to hear, is that it's not law. You still, people still have rights. Let's talk about what those rights are currently and what some states are doing about them. In New York, for example, the state just announced a task force to monitor the effects of COVID-19 on pregnancy. And so I couldn't really gather much from what, what the goals of the task force was uh, and what the expected outcomes were. So do you have any more insight into that task force? I unfortunately do not. Okay. And then in terms of just other risks that we, I had read about, there have been, I don't know if I would call it anecdotal, but there have been reports, studies with small data pools that women who test positive for COVID also are asymptomatic. Um, this is in one New York hospital. I don't know whether they've actually taken any action based on that preliminary data, but it seems that there needs to be greater precautions for pregnant women if they're going to be asymptomatic and be positive and not be aware of that? Well, I know that some hospitals have started instituting testing, testing all people admitted into LMD for COVID. So to be able to identify, even if someone is asymptomatic, are they carrying it or not? Are they positive or not? So I know that not all hospitals have the capability to do that though. And so some of them are treating every person as if they could be positive. And so that's, you know, that means wearing the PPE and, and doing um, all the other safety precautions that people are doing just in general and relative to COVID. And then do we know anything or is it too early to draw any conclusions about the transmission, either 
prenatal transmission of COVID from mother to baby or afterwards, potentially through breastfeeding? You know, we have research that came out right, uh, gosh, when was it? It was pretty soon after everything started um, escalating with COVID that said that coronavirus was not found in breast milk. And I don't, I haven't seen any evidence and it might be out there, but I haven't seen any evidence to indicate that there's a conclusive link between vertical transmission from mother to fetus. What I'm hearing you say is I think that there's, there's a burden in a way for a pregnant woman to have to make sure during this time of uncertainty that they're gathering information and being as informed as possible and having conversations with their medical provider so that they know what are the circumstances that they're going to face and the possibilities of options that they could face and then potentially make changes to their birthing plan that they may not want to. Yeah, it, I think it's important to be proactive. I mean, th- and things are changing very quickly. You know, and if you're not due until September, it might look very differently than if you are due in two weeks. So, you know, I think it's important for people to be in close communication with their providers, to be following what policies are going on, and to be well informed of what their options are. And if they're considering out of hospital birth, to be start investigating that as soon as possible, because I know a lot of midwifery practices are filling up very quickly. We've come to the point of our conversation where we ask every guest a series of questions that I call the Engendered Questionnaire. I've adapted it from inside the actor's studio. First question is, what is at stake in the struggle to end gender-based violence and oppression? All of our liberation. What gives you hope? Seeing people doing good work every day. Seeing midwives who are out there working hard, seeing physicians and nurses and doulas, seeing nurse managers who are creating positive change in their community, not just in their community, but in their L&D unit. There's a lot of incredible people who are using whatever power and influence they have to create change. And if we all continue doing that, we can create a better future for all of us. And final question, what can we do more of, less of, start or stop? to end gender-based violence and oppression? Well, I think one thing that we can do is when we raise our little boys to normalize emotion, to help them manage their, help them, you know, there are so many messages that our kiddos receive that really tweak how they view the world. And one thing that I tell my little guy, I, you know, anytime he's having a hard time or an emotional moment, I say, I love how you feel your feelings. I want my kiddos to know, both of them, but especially my son, that those feelings, you know, you can be strong and sad. You can enjoy gardening and you can enjoy woodworking. The whole scope of humanity is available to you. And it, regardless of what you consider to be limitations based on masculinity or femininity, there is so much for us to experience and there's so much for us to enjoy and to step into our authentic selves rather than feeling like I have to do X or I have to shave this part of me off because it doesn't fit with what being a woman or what being a man means. I think it's time for us to just embrace who we are and step into ourselves rather than considering what society tells us we need to be. Thank you so much, Jen. It was a pleasure having you on the show. Thank you so much for having me. I had a great time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Engendered. The show is sponsored by Can Do It Q&A, 
a peer-based knowledge platform that connects social service providers in advice, community, and learning. You can join Can Do It Q&A for free at qna.kanduit.com. I'd love to get your feedback and hear any questions or suggestions you may have for the show. Please email us at engenderedpodcast at gmail.com with your questions.